Genesis 35:16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And, her soul, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Bethoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the word of God. Well, I'm tempted to uh, ask Jennifer and, and Elena and Nathan if they would just keep playing. <laughs> we are so grateful. We are so grateful. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day, this Christmas day. We thank you for this mystery, which is the beginning of the redemption of this world. Father, as many have said before us, that this incarnation which we celebrate, God becoming man, in it everything past and everything future is encompassed. Father, we praise you for that. We praise you that Jesus was born for us. Jesus was given for us. That Jesus, this human child, and this Son of God, of yours, belongs to us. Jesus, we praise you that you know us. We praise you that we have you. We praise you that we love you. We praise you that we are yours and you are ours. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that on you alone our very lives depend. We praise you for this Christmas and for the gathering of your people to worship. Father, we praise you for the women and the men whom you have brought to remind us of your movement toward us, that you delighted to be with us and to make yourself known. Father, for some today, 
this may be the first day that you have made yourself known through Christ. We ask that you would do it for your glory. Father, for others of us, um, we come to you and we ask you, would you make Jesus known even clearer for us? Would you fill us with the themes and the hopes encaptured in Bethlehem, the city where you reveal yourself? Father, would you again reveal yourself to us today? Father, the distractions are many, not only in our own hearts and our heads, but in our pews and all around us. But Holy Spirit, you have always said that you would use the foolishness of preaching. And so we ask that in these next few minutes, you would guard our attention and you would reveal Christ to us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the depth and the magnitude of the gift of your Son that you give us that we celebrate this day. And we ask now, make us understand it more and more by your word. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, some of you may have heard that text read and you thought to yourself, man, this church is kind of stodgy. They're not even going to talk about Christmas on Christmas. Uh, but hopefully you did hear the word Bethlehem uh, pointed in that text. We're going to get to it in just a minute in verse 19. But I want to ask you a question first as you look at this text. I want to ask you, is there a town or a place that you love? A town or a place that you love? A town or a place that you would say, hey, this town actually defines me. It reveals who I am. Is there a town or a place that you find yourself returning to time and time again? I want you to know that there is for God. That town is Bethlehem. It's a town that he loves. It's a town in which he chose to define himself and to which he returns again and again. This is the end of Jacob's narrative. You remember how we talked about the book of Genesis being broken up into these 10 sections, the generations of, right? And this is the end of the generations of Isaac, the end of Jacob's story. And I think that it gives us a great picture of what it looks like to live outside of Bethlehem, outside of God's self-revelation, outside of the knowledge of who God is. Remember, we've said that we've been studying Isaac and Jacob, those two of the three fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because they're heroes, but for us to understand the God who took their names on himself. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And what does that mean? Well, you might ask me, Bradley, what does it mean that Jacob exemplifies in this passage living outside of Bethlehem, outside of God's self-revelation? And then it might beg the question then to say, what would it look like to live from Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, 
in the recognition of who God is, to live in light of God's self-revelation. Look, I'm going to go quickly through this text. I get that it's Christmas, but I also want you to see what is here for us. I think that the first question, what it means to live outside of Bethlehem, is exemplified for us pretty well in Jacob's story. We've seen Jacob with a lot of ups and downs. We've seen him take the name Israel on himself. We have seen him actually build an altar and worship the God, the God of Israel, right? We, we, we saw him do that. But we've also seen Jacob fail in pretty significant ways. And I would argue that Jacob in this text goes out with a bit of a whimper. But I want you to see in it this hint of glory. What's the first sign of living outside of Bethlehem, outside of God's self-revelation? I want you to see the first one in 16 and 17, those two verses. I want you to see that one of the signs is that those who live outside of Bethlehem seek to assuage the curse by possessions. What do I mean by that? We see in those two verses Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, dying, right, as she bears a child. The curse of Genesis 3 couldn't be more in our face. But listen to how she is comforted. Don't worry, don't fear, she's told. You have a son. An amazing thing, an amazing reason. No encouragement of her identity, no encouragement of God, but you have a son. You may say, hey, that's a good thing to, to say. But if you remember chapter 30 and, and, and the warfare that took place in Jacob's house, over who would bear the most sons. And do you remember how Leah or how Rachel named her son Joseph because Joseph meant, give me more. I want more. And she prayed, may God give me more sons. And here, in this first picture of living outside of Bethlehem, we see the temptation of assuaging the curse by possessions. Verse 18 gives us another one. Another sign of living outside of Bethlehem is the temptation towards self-centeredness. She names her sin Benoni, which means, as you can look in your Bibles as easily as I can, my sorrow or all my strength, son of my sorrow or son of all my strength. Look, I'm dying. Naming his life in relation to her but Jacob doesn't do much better there. He says, son of the right hand. Now, any of you who know my family know that our very firstborn is Benjamin, <laughs> son of the right hand. Our second child is actually named Jacob also. And you may say, why in the world? Hang on, hang on. But listen, both Rachel and Jacob look at this child and they can think only of themselves, either of their sorrow or of their future protection. Son of my right hand means power, protection, strength, and might. In verses 19 and 20, another sign of living outside of Bethlehem is making monuments to loss, right? What are we told happens in 19 and 20? That Jacob erects a pillar to the death and the, the, the burial place of Rachel, 
You know, if you continue to read, Jacob, the next time he speaks is in chapter 48. And there, guess what he talks about? Of all the things that have happened in his life, he talks about this, Rachel's death and how sad he is. Rachel's death and her monument, we're told, existed even to the present day of when Moses wrote this book of Genesis. That Rachel's death became for the nation of Israel a proverb of weeping and suffering. So much so that Jeremiah was able to say that when the nation was swept away into exile, he used the phrase, the proverb, you could hear Rachel weeping for her children. It was a national proverb. And you know where else we pick it up, right? Matthew 2, when King Herod kills all the little babies. And the writer of the Gospels picks up that national proverb hearing Rachel weeping for her children. Living outside of Bethlehem is creating monuments to loss. And then finally in verse 22, we see that living outside of Bethlehem continues to put us in a place of being mired in relational politics. Look, Reuben does a grotesque act of violation and of violence by going and sleeping with one of Jacob's wives, the maidservant of Rachel. But the reason that he did it was to displace her. He displaced Bilhah's possibility of gaining favor in Jacob's eyes. The reason that Reuben did it was to crush Rachel's dreams and Bilhah's dreams of receiving the blessing. But living outside of Bethlehem often means being mired in relational politics. And the last thing that I would point out in verses 23 and 26 is a lack of confidence of the future of the blessing. The whole genealogy is given to you because we don't know where this promise goes forward from here. We don't know who Jacob is going to bless. We don't know who Jacob has been called to bless. In fact, we wonder, is it Reuben? Well, well, Reuben, we're told, is cursed in just a few chapters because he slept with Jacob's wife, Bilhah. But then we don't know if it's Simeon or Levi, the next two possibilities in Leah's line. Jacob himself seems to choose Joseph and to give him a double portion. But we don't know. And the reader is left wondering, where is the confidence and the hope of future blessing? And even the reconciliation at the end with Esau and Jacob, his brother who had sworn to kill him, even that reconciliation is tainted by death in this passage. The signs of living outside of Bethlehem, assuaging the curse by possessions, self-centeredness, monuments to loss, mired in relational politics, lack of confidence in the future blessing. Which of those signs resonates with you? Which do you struggle with the most? Which one do you say, hmm, I've never thought how that relates to Bethlehem. 
I told you that the first question begged the second question. If this passage has anything to do with what life outside of Bethlehem is like, what do you think that life within Bethlehem? Life lived in the reality of God's self-revelation would look like. The first thing that I want you to see is that Bethlehem is in this passage. Did you catch it in verse 19? So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrathah. That is Bethlehem. The first reality of living within Bethlehem is that at the very name of Bethlehem, your heart is stirred. Did you read this passage and did you wonder, wait a minute, there's a pregnant woman, there is an attempt to get to Bethlehem, there is a birth, but, but the mother dies. But it's Bethlehem. Did your heart stir like when you hear Rivendale, for those of you who love Lord of the Rings, when you hear the, 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 the location of Narnia, when you hear the Chronicles of Narnia? Does this idea and even the word of Bethlehem stir your heart that you're part of a much larger story? And in that story, you're not the main character. You know, this week I got a huge compliment. It was a case of mistaken identity. One of our young parishioners was watching White Christmas and they looked up at Bing Crosby singing on the stage and they said, look, it's Pastor Bradley <laughs> to Bing Crosby. And when I went over to his house to visit with this young kid, he said, come and watch it with me. And the, Bing Crosby came on and he goes, it's you, it's you. And I thought, well, the only thing that Bing Crosby and I share in common is blue eyes. There's nothing else, not the voice, not the ability to dance, not any of that. But then I started imagining, wouldn't it be great if I were Bing Crosby? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great that if every time you walked into a store, you heard my voice? In fact, Bing Crosby is Christmas. And suddenly this idea of how we center ourselves in our stories, we're the center, hit me like a ton of bricks. But when you hear the word Bethlehem, your heart stirs. Christmas, it's not all about us. Listen, if you live in light of Bethlehem, you have to wait because after this scene, we still have Egypt to go. We still have the desert to go. We still have the conquest of the promised land to go. We still have the judges to go. To live in light of Bethlehem, in light of God's self-revelation, you have to wait until the book of Ruth. Did you know that that's the next place where Bethlehem is highlighted? And you want to know what the theme of the book of Ruth is? It is the theme of redemption. And it's redemption of one of the most unlikely situations. Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, two women who are widows, and not just widows, Naomi is from Bethlehem, but Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a foreigner. She is from outside of God's people. And yet, in this most unlikely story of redemption, the theme of Bethlehem, Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth by marrying Ruth. But guess what else is present in this 
story that takes place in Bethlehem. That's right, there's a pregnancy. And that's right, there's a son that's born. And that son, born to Ruth and Boaz, is Obed. Obed, for those of you all who listen to Andrew Peterson, is the father of who? Jesse. And Jesse is the father of who? King David. Not only those who live in light of Bethlehem, their hearts stir at the very word, but the theme of our lives becomes a theme of redemption, of the most unlikely scenes to be redeemed. But it is not without waiting, because guess what? It's another 300 years in the history of the Bible before Bethlehem is mentioned again. And you want to know where it's mentioned? It's mentioned in Micah chapter 5. It's the 8th century. The northern kingdom is about to be crushed by the Assyrians. But if redemption is the theme of Bethlehem and the theme of lives lived from Bethlehem, then the reality is one of peace. But guess what this quote from Micah starts with? The context is one of labor pains. Isn't that interesting? Another place where we see this word Bethlehem come up the context is as a nation in labor pains, being crushed in pain. But listen to this quote that mentions Bethlehem in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up. God shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And listen to what it talks about, about the one to whom is given birth. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. If the theme of Bethlehem is redemption, the reality of those who live within Bethlehem is peace. Sorrow and suffering always gives way to peace. Well, there's one more place where Bethlehem is mentioned, and it's the place that you've waited for. It's the place that you know. It's the place, interesting, with Mary and Joseph, another pregnancy, another labor, another birth, another son. Because in Luke chapter 2, Bethlehem is where God reveals himself. God became man. That's the reality we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was born just like you and I were born. We read in Luke 2, possibly the most underrated words in all of Scripture, when the time had come for her to give birth, she gave birth to a son, 
And she wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. God became human. To live in the light of Bethlehem, to live as those from Bethlehem, to live in the reality of God's revelation, his self-revelation, is to realize that he came to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. But he came not just to taste our sadness, but to redeem us by dying on the cross for us. Jesus, the baby born in a manger, God became human. The end was that we might be adopted to be his sons and daughters with all of the rights and the privileges of the firstborn. Jeff mentioned the wise men. This is what the wise men saw. This is why the wise men came looking for a king. This is why they came to Herod. And this is why they were sent to Bethlehem. Because this is the reality of Bethlehem. Do you see? Do you understand? Which of these realities of those who live in light of Bethlehem that your heart is stirred by the very name of it, the theme of your life is redemption, the reality of your life is a movement toward peace, and the hope of your life is God becoming man. Which of these will shape your, your repentance today? Which will drive you to this table and say, thank you, God, thank you for that reality? I want to close with this quote that Bonhoeffer wrote in this book that we've been reading, God in a Manger. And listen to what he says. He says, it is God himself, the Lord and creator of all things, who is so small here, who is hidden here in the corner, who enters into the plainness of the world, who meets us in the helplessness and defenselessness of a child and wants to be with us. And he does this not out of playfulness or sport or because we find it so touching, but in order to show us where he is and who he is. And in order from this place to judge and devalue and to dethrone all human ambition, the throne of God in the world is not on a human throne, but it's in the human depths of our need. It is in the manger. And standing around that manger, standing around his throne, there are no flattering vassals but dark, unknown, questionable figures who cannot get their fill of this miracle and want to live entirely by the mercy of God.
does that describe you and me? Questionable, unknown figures standing back in the darkness, watching, but who can't get their fill of this miracle. Because those who live from within Bethlehem count this incarnation as the pinnacle from which everything past and everything future, including the cross, are based. To live within Bethlehem has these signs and shapes. Let's see if we can repent toward that today. Please pray with me.